announced. There are flyers out for all of us to consider. This has already been mentioned. This is a congregational effort seminar for us on engaging everyone for eternity. And so I'm hoping that you're making plans to be here. David's working hard to prepare these lessons, especially for our congregation to encourage us in our Bible school program, being equipped to teach in that endeavor, leadership and several other things. And of course, on Sunday, that Sunday, September 10th, it'll be him for all three services and we can invite our friends and neighbors to that effort. But if you haven't already, mark your calendar, do your best to arrange your schedule in such a way so that we can all be here for that. I don't know, Neil, is there a yes yet or no? Well, just be keeping the Pollards and the Mayberries in your prayers as they're expecting grandbaby number one and number two, respectively. And so we're glad they're here, but be praying for Dale and Janelle this morning as they are in process, we can say. Loading. Yeah, that's a good way to say it. This white flag, it has a long history. Nobody really knows. Historians don't know when it began, when people began to view it this way. But we use the terms all the time. Typically in boxing, you'll hear somebody say after he's taken a great beating, just go ahead and throw in the towel or raise the white flag. It's a sign of defeat, a sign of surrender. Tacitus says that in the Second Punic War, there was a ship that had these white flags around it that also symbolized defeat. It's just a universal symbol that says to opposition, we give up, we can't do anymore, we surrender. We might know it best from the words of the song from Hudson Van Deventer in 1896, and we often sing the hymn, I surrender all. But what the world means by surrender and how it's used in the New Testament, or as far as Jesus is concerned, there are two different ideas. What the world means when it talks about surrender, it means defeat, loss. It means to suffer a tragic overcoming. But to suffer defeat in Christ, to surrender all to Jesus, is to win in the most marvelous way. It was one of Jesus's favorite ways of communicating spiritual success to his disciples. And whenever he saw it, he made sure to emphasize it to his disciples so that they wouldn't miss it. It's where Jesus says, love God with all of your heart, soul, mind and strength. Matthew 22, 37 through 40. It's the man that sees the great treasure in the field and he goes and sells everything that he has to purchase that field or the pearl of great price. It's something that you would give everything for. And whenever Jesus saw people doing that, he saw fit to note it and point it out to other people and said, this is what following me is really all about. This is what a life of discipleship really means. Our text this morning from Luke 14, verses 25 through 35, is found in similar gospel accounts. You find a parallel in Matthew and one in Mark as well. But the way it's described in Luke is the most extensive of all the accounts, and that makes sense. You would expect Jesus to have this difficult conversation with people following him in this gospel. Jesus calling people to surrender all because in the gospel of Luke, you see people doing it so often. It starts with a virgin girl willing to surrender her womb to the divine so that he can make his entrance into the world. Luke chapter one and verse 38 or relatively unknown widow who's worshiped God at the temple night and day. Luke two thirty six and thirty seven waiting for the coming Messiah. It's the good Samaritan who gives his time, treasure and tender compassion to a relative stranger and is even willing to pay more upon his return. It's a crooked tax collector who realizes that he's cheated people. And not only is he repenting of his wrongs, but he says, I'll restore fourfold as he stands before Jesus, the son of God. What Jesus says to us in this section is what he's preached throughout the entirety of his earthly ministry. And that is, if you're going to come after me, salvation is free, but discipleship will cost you everything you have. 
we know these texts. But in our age of convenient Christianity, I'm afraid when we approach texts like this, we're tempted to read these verses and immediately pour a pound of caveat sauce on Jesus's words and say, well, that's what Jesus is saying. But he's saying some very difficult things here, and it probably doesn't mean exactly what we think it means. And while the words need to be said in their context and we don't need to stretch them for shock value, we do need to receive the words from Jesus exactly how he gives them to us. Because if we're going to be his disciples, he requests no more of us or less of us than he did of them. Jesus wants our all. If you have your Bible, go ahead and turn it to Luke chapter 14 and we'll start in verse 25. And what we're going to do is just simply work down through the text and notice what Jesus says it looks like for someone to surrender all and be his disciple. Now, a great crowd accompanied him. And he turned and said to them, whoever comes to me and doesn't hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, can't be my disciple. Whoever doesn't come to me and bear his own cross and follow after me cannot be my disciple. Which one of you intending to build a tower doesn't sit down first and count the cost, whether he's able to finish? Else after he's laid a foundation and is unable to finish, others who see it begin to mock him and say, this man began to build and was unable to finish. Or what king intending to go to war against another king doesn't sit down first and determine whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him coming against him with 20,000. Otherwise, while he's a great way off, he'll send a delegation asking for terms of peace. Likewise, whosoever there be of you that doesn't denounce everything that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if it loses its taste, how will its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for the soil or for the manure pile, but it is cast away. He that has ears to hear. Let him hear. Jesus wants in a word our all. And how do we go about ensuring that he gets it? Here we go this morning. Number one, it involves putting ourselves under the teaching of Jesus. Notice verse 25. It says, then great crowds accompanied him. There's this large multitude following Jesus. And then he turns and delivers this most difficult sermon to this great group of people. Following Jesus means putting ourselves under his teaching. That's where we start with surrendering our all. It's saying Jesus's words and his message are what's going to be the focal point of my life and who I am. Now, you look at verse 25. This comes up over and over again in Luke that great multitudes follow Jesus. And you can imagine why he could feed people on a moment's notice, open the eyes of the blind and raise the dead. But more than wanting a magic show, true discipleship means I want to follow Jesus because I want to hear him teach me and shape my life around those teachings. When he was in Peter's house in Mark chapter two and verse two, the Bible says there was no room even at the doors. And Jesus began preaching the word to them. But it's one thing to hear Jesus's teaching, but it's another thing to let it find a home in our hearts and actually be transformed by what he says. And so Jesus would often challenge people. Matthew seven and verse twenty one. Not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But those that do the will of my father who is in heaven. Or Luke 6 and verse 46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and refuse to do the things I say? Surrendering all means, yes, I want to come to Jesus for the right motives, but I also want to hear the message, embrace it, and then put it into practice in my life. Albert Einstein High School in Maryland made the Washington Post in 2019. The title of the article was, Can You Skip 47 Days of English and Still Graduate? I know some of you are like, yeah, I did. Well, listen, this article is about how this school that's supposedly academically prestigious, they're just sort of letting people pass through. One student missed 47 days of English, another missed 36 days of algebra, and the article from the Post is trying to figure out how is this school that's supposed to have high academic standards letting all of these individuals slip through the cracks and still award them diplomas. 
The academic situation in Maryland may be a mystery, but here's the reality for us. You can't rack up unexcused absences at the feet of Jesus and still be his disciple. And so he says about Mary in Luke 10, 41 and 42, she's chosen the good part, which won't be taken away from her because she sat at Jesus's feet and wanted to learn, wanted to be drawn in. And if we would surrender all, it begins by putting ourselves under the the teachings of Jesus. For people that haven't obeyed the gospel, this is sometimes a challenge. Sometimes people come to Christianity and they want the functions and the festivals and the various events, but they're really not interested in what Jesus has to say as it relates to his teaching. Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments, John 14, 15. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you, John 15 and verse 14. But all of that assumes that we actually have sat still long enough to hear what he has to say to us. And so he says, come under my teaching. Listen to the words that I'm saying, and then you can be my disciple. You might expect a section like this, Luke 14, 25 through 35, to be something that Jesus would reserve for private with his disciples. I mean, after all, why wait until you have this great multitude following you to deliver the most difficult sermon? Jesus, don't you know this is going to turn people away? Jesus doesn't want them to turn away unless they want to be because they're really not interested in following him. Jesus says surrendering all begins with surrendering ears. First, listen to what I have to say. Romans 10, 17. So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Notice how this whole textbook ends in verse 35. He that has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus is saying, listen to me. But it's also a challenge for those of us who've been following Jesus for a long time. Because in surrendering all, we might start to think to ourselves that maybe these old and ancient words aren't good enough for the 21st century. Or perhaps we know his words so well that we can finish his sentences and we don't really need to listen up closely because we've read them and heard them over and over again. But listen to God speak of Jesus in Matthew 17 and verse five. This is my son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. This crowd is following Jesus and Jesus turns around essentially to say, do you hear what I'm saying? Listen to the message because it's going to challenge you in ways you probably haven't previously considered. Number two. If we would surrender all, it means Jesus deserves a place of high priority. Now, the words in verse 26 are also found in Matthew 10, 35 through 37. But Luke's is far more extensive. Notice that he hits on the relationships in our lives that are closest to us. Jesus says, if any man will come after me who doesn't hate father and mother, wife and children, Brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he can't be my disciple. Jesus gets at the heart of those that we love most, and he says, I've got to be above them. Now, you know that this doesn't mean what it appears, at least on his face, to mean that Jesus means to detest or to really hate these individuals. And if you struggle with that, you might write next to this verse, Leviticus 19 and verse 18, where Jesus, where the law says, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus surely wouldn't be telling us to go against that command and to actually hate these individuals. But here's what he is saying. You take the relationships that mean the most to us in the world. And when we look at those relationships and our relationship to him, the devotion should be so much higher. The contrast and the legion so apparent. The faithfulness and dedication to the one above the other so readily seen by others that if people were to stop and look from a distance, they would say this one he loves. But this one he evidently hates. Jesus is saying it should be clear what matters most to us in our lives. And so Matthew 6 and verse 24, no man can serve two masters. Either he'll hate the one or love the other. He'll hold to the one and despise the other. You can't serve God and man. And Jesus is saying, I want a place in your life if you're going to follow me above your affections. For those that you love most in the world, put me first. You think about the people Jesus encounters in the Gospels who actually have to do this. 
Jesus is walking by the sea in Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 through 22, and he sees two sets of brothers. There's Peter and Andrew, James and John. They leave their father and their boats and their nets, and they follow him. Later, Jesus meets other people who struggle with this. In Luke chapter 9, the last two people Jesus encounters, they worry about family. The first says, I want to go and bury my father. The second says, let me bid those farewell that are at my house. Jesus says, let the dead bury their dead. And no man having put in his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Luke 9 and verse 62. Jesus is saying to us, if there's a relationship in your life that means more to you than this one, then you should tend to those matters and not to me because I want first place over everybody. In Exodus chapter 32, you remember there is the golden calf incident and Israel worships the golden calf. Moses comes down and 3000 Israelites lose their lives. But in Exodus 32 and verse 26, Moses poses this question to ancient Israel. Who is on the Lord's side? And sometimes being on the Lord's side means that I may very well be in opposition to my family. If we're going to surrender all, Jesus wants a place of priority above everybody else. We should put those closest to us on notice. We should say to them, I love you as much as God wants me to love you, but please don't ever put me in a situation to choose between you and the Lord because I've already made up my mind. Don't ever leave the Lord and think that I'm going to follow behind you because I won't. I won't split services with the Lord's people and another group. I just won't do it. Don't ever put me in a situation where I have to choose between you and God because I'm going to choose God every single time without hesitation. Jesus is saying, make sure that you give me a place of priority above everybody else. And in a culture where these relationships meant the most, his words had to carry a sting and they still carry a sting today. Jesus is saying, when you look at those relationships and your relationship to me, you had better make sure that your priorities are in order and that I have a place of privilege and priority above everyone else in the world. You know that there are people today that will hear the gospel. You sit down, you study the Bible with them. Conceptually, they get it. A person will actually say these words based on what the New Testament says. I'm lost, but I just can't do that. You say, why? Wow, we've got the baptistry ready. You've got a church family that wants to support you, throw their loving arms around you. Jesus is willing to save you. Is there a disconnect somewhere? Oh, no, there's not a disconnect except for this one thing. I've got family members that haven't done what you're saying. And if I obey the gospel, there's a sense in which I feel as if I'm condemning them. And there's just no way I could do that. And while their love for their loved ones is admirable, there's a disconnect between the love of their earthly family and their heavenly father. Jesus was teaching in Mark chapter three, verse 32 down through verse 34. And they come out to Jesus and they say, your mother and your brothers are outside desiring to speak with you. And Jesus says, pointing to his disciples, who are my mother? Who's my brother? But those that hear the word of God and keep it, Jesus says, this is my true and ultimate family. Jesus wants to be first in our lives. He's challenging us with putting him in a place where nobody else even comes in a close second. Jesus is saying, Give me first rank in your life. I want to place a priority above everybody else, and I won't come in a tie with anybody in second. Jesus is saying, is God first above all? To follow Jesus and to surrender all says we won't become cold and distant toward those we love. No, people that actually put this into practice will love their loved ones better than they could have previously without this divine injunction. But God is saying, don't cheat me. Don't put me in back of other individuals because you think life will be more convenient for you. Can't you see this crowd becoming agitated and a little unrest developing? Does he really mean what he's saying? And he does. Jesus says surrender all. Here's number three. Surrendering all to Jesus means pursuing the crucified life. 
In our world, most people are executed today through lethal injection, but some states still sign off on the firing squad or maybe the gas chamber or even this idea of individuals being put to death through, what's the other one? I forget. Lethal injection, the gas chamber, electrocution. That's the third one. But here Jesus is saying, pursue the crucified life. Whoever comes after me must take up his cross, bear it every day and follow me. Jesus knew he would be crucified and often reminded his disciples toward this end to pursue this same life of crucifixion for themselves. Turn your Bible to Luke chapter nine and notice what Jesus says in verse 23. Luke nine and verse 23, Jesus says, if any man will come after me, let him deny his cross, deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. True discipleship means that we pursue the crucified life right alongside Jesus. If you go to a high school football game or maybe a little league, you've seen this before. Some player gets crushed, gets hit really hard. Mom stands up hollering, why'd you hit my baby like that? There are some parents that won't even let their children play contact sports because they're fearful of the pain that might be inflicted on those they love. Evidently, that doesn't stop in little league. Patrick Mahomes took a severe hit in the playoff game of 2021. His mom went to Twitter to complain about the hit that Patrick received. Why'd they hit my baby so hard? And you know the response. It's football. It's a contact sport. It's exactly what you should expect. If you sign up for football, you're going to probably be hit pretty hard, especially if you decide to play quarterback. What Jesus is doing in Luke 14 and verse 27 is trying to keep anybody from ever following behind him and responding with that same question when life hits them hard. Why'd they hit me so hard? Why doesn't the world like me? Why don't people love me? It's exactly what we signed up for when we decided to be Jesus's disciples. And so Peter says in first Peter four and verse 12, don't think it a strange thing concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though something strange has happened to you. But consider yourself servants of God as you're going through this fiery trial. Or first Peter four sixteen. If any man suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this fashion. Jesus is saying, if you're going to surrender all, it means pursuing the crucified life. It doesn't mean that we're always on the run or that we're always being martyred or persecuted, but it does mean that that might be our lot and we don't run away from that. We've decided to follow Jesus even when it's difficult and we rejoice in doing so. When Peter and John are persecuted for righteousness sake, they rejoice that they've been counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Acts five and verse forty one. They beat Paul and Silas. And in Acts 16 and verse 25, they prayed and sang hymns to God because they understood this. Nobody wrote about the crucified life and honed in on it more than the Apostle Paul. He says, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live yet not I, but Christ lives in me and the life that I now live in by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul says, I'm living out my Christian life and it's a part of being crucified with Jesus. It's a part of being Jesus's servant and laying down all in order to follow behind the one who laid down all for us. In Galatians six and verse 14, Paul says, God forbid that I should glory except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom all things have been crucified to me and I've been crucified to them. It's what it means to follow Jesus. If you think about why Jesus died by crucifixion, it really drives this point home for us. Yes, the Old Testament prophesied that it would be crucifixion. Psalm 22. And crucifixion was painful and he'd be bruised for our iniquities, Isaiah 53. But crucifixion is also a death of surrender. There's nothing you can do in response to your suffering. And that's exactly what Jesus wants from us to follow close enough to Jesus that we end up receiving the same treatment and we suffer it gladly. He says, whoever comes after me and doesn't bear his own cross is unworthy to be my disciple. 
you know our shock at the mistreatment of the world and the persecution we receive may say more about our unfamiliarity with Jesus' teaching than we might be letting on. Sometimes we're shocked when the world doesn't receive us properly or when we suffer for righteousness sake. But this is exactly what it means to be a Christian. Jesus says, if the world hated me, no, they'll hate you, too. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But you're not of the world. I've chosen you out of the world. That's why they hate you. John 15, 18 and 19. Marvel not at the world when it hates you. First John 3, 12 and 13. It's what we should expect as disciples of Jesus. And surrendering all means not that we endure the crucified life. Jesus says, I want you to pursue it. Following Jesus means we endure our own crucifixion. And we might say to ourselves, we've never seen one. And while the Romans perfected it in the first century, we have seen it as we've ourselves undergone this and seen this happen with other people going down in the watery grave of baptism and rising to walk in newness of life. That's exactly what Paul says has happened to us. Romans six and verse six, knowing that our old man has been crucified and we've risen to walk in newness of life. It means we've joined along with Jesus and our lives should be different. Pursuing the crucified life means That we, as Roger prayed a moment ago, try to the best of our ability to subdue the flesh and walk in the spirit. Galatians 5.25. Pursuing the crucified life means we find ourselves in the same company of people that Jesus found himself around, even if it makes the religiously sophisticated uncomfortable. Luke 15.1 and 2. Pursuing the crucified life means when we make decisions, we don't think about what feels the best or what's the easiest. But what's going to help us to be more like God? Matthew 5 and verse 16. Pursuing the crucified life means I always put the will of God above my own. And even after I've done that, I realize how much he gave up to follow me. I don't pat myself on the back. I say, that's exactly what I've signed up for. If David is right in Psalm 63 and verse 3 that his loving kindness is better than life itself, then it makes sense that we would be willing to lose our lives for the sake of getting closer to him. Because in the end, then we'll truly live eternally in his presence. Jesus says, give all, surrender all. And do so by pursuing the crucified life. Here's the next one. It involves proper preparation. This is the section that Barrett read for us a moment ago in verse 28 through 32. Jesus now gives two illustrations. And he says these two illustrations symbolize what I mean when I say come behind me and be my disciple. The first is of a man intending to build a tower. He says count the cost. You would hate to sit down to build this tower. You get halfway through. You've laid the foundation. You're unable to finish. Other people will see it and mock you and say this person began to build and was unable to finish. It's like a king getting ready to go to war. This person is ready to engage in battle. They see a mountain army coming toward them. Can we be friends? We're sorry. We didn't really mean that. We want to be on good terms. Jesus says you don't want to suffer that kind of embarrassment. Count the cost. These words in the speech are probably the most misinterpreted, though. Jesus is not saying to people before they become Christians or after, listen, sit down and do the calculations. And if you think that Christianity is going to cost you too much, you'd be better off turning away. That couldn't be right. Because the result of be lost eternally, Jesus would never encourage anybody to do that. What Jesus is saying is there's no such thing as cost free discipleship. The words from Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, still ring true. When Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. But Jesus is saying, do the calculations and see that it's worth it. Be willing to pay the price. Don't turn away. Jesus is trying to keep us from presenting to him on the day of judgment a half finished tower and expecting to hear well done when we're really not done. And what we did do, we didn't do well. He's saying, I want you to do the calculating and get it right. There are two types of drivers. One driver fills up their tank every time it gets to a half a tank. I worked with a man. If his gas got to half a tank, he was at the gas station filling up. The second driver is the person whose gas light is always on under the guise of, I know my car. 
Listen, Jesus is saying, do the calculations. If your daughter was being married and you knew that the trip was going to be 14 hours away, you do the calculations. You wouldn't ride all the way on your gas light and then run out of gas and call your daughter up and say, hey, I missed the wedding. I'm sorry. I was unprepared. If you knew it was going to be a great distance away, nobody would say about their son's graduation. You know what? Are they live streaming it? Because, hey, it's going to cost me a lot to get there and I just can't make it. You do the right thing. You make preparation. You perform the proper calculations. And then after you've done that, you pay whatever expense was necessary so that you could be there and be present. Jesus is saying, don't miss the greatest banquet in the history of the world. Don't run out of gas halfway through because you didn't properly calculate. Do you know how many spiritual cars are stuck on the side of the road because people knew their car? How many people never finished the tower they initially began to build? Second Timothy four and verse 10. Demas abandoned the gospel, having loved this present world and departed to Thessalonica. Jesus is saying, don't let that be true about you. Do the calculations and then pay whatever it costs to get through. Count the cost so that you know what you're getting into. But what you're getting into is worth it. Jesus is saying proper preparation needs to be made so that you won't be embarrassed with the half finished product. In the ancient city of Fidene, this city was about five miles north of Rome. In A.D. 27, there was a great amphitheater disaster. Tacitus says 50,000 people died. Suetonius says there were 20,000 killed. It's possible that Jesus' listeners knew about this terrible disaster where this theater collapsed and killed thousands of people. And Jesus is saying about the lives of his listeners then and now, don't make your life a construction disaster. Don't watch your life crumble before your eyes. Study, read your Bible, take care of your spiritual soul. Count the cost of what it's going to take to follow me. Second Peter 2, 20 through 22 describes those that like dogs go back to their vomit and like pigs go back to their wallowing in the mire. And Jesus is saying you don't want to be half finished because there are no half medals or half consolation prizes. It really is all or nothing. Count the cost and be willing to pay. Do the right thing and surrender all to follow me because it's going to be worth it. But I don't want you to be deceived. Do the calculations. Do the work. Make sure that you dig in and see what does it really mean to be Jesus's disciples. Danker is right when he says an invitation to follow Jesus is no invitation to an ice cream social. So many people are shocked when they become Christians of how much it's going to cost them that Jesus expects them to attend worship services. And be engaged in evangelism and to actually use their talents in the kingdom of God. And then they get out their ledger and they start trying to negotiate the contract backwards. Well, how much of this do I actually have to do in order to remain saved? And will I lose my soul if I don't attend this event or if I'm not engaged in this work as if they thought discipleship is something that can be negotiated on our terms? Jesus says, which one of you intending to build a tower wouldn't do this? Which king going to war wouldn't do this? You're engaged in the most necessary war in the history of the world and God's greatest building project. He says, throw in all of your efforts so that you won't be disappointed. Here's number five. To surrender all means that we are willing to part ways with everything. Luke 14 and verse 33. If you could advance the slide for me, John, or whoever is in the booth. There we go. Luke 14, 33, it means to part ways with everything. Jesus says, likewise, whosoever there be of you that doesn't abandon everything that he has can't be my disciple. Jesus says, I want you to be willing to give up everything. He met a rich young ruler in Luke 18, 32 and 33, who wouldn't do this. Jesus says, sell all of your goods and give them to the poor. The Bible says the man walked away sorrowful because he had great possessions. Jesus is challenging us to be willing to do away with everything possible if it means we can come after him in order to do so. This doesn't mean Jesus wants all of us to always sell our goods, but it does mean he wants us to be willing to if it called for it. 
In Acts chapter 2, when people became Christians, they saw the needs of others. Acts 2, 42 and 45, they sold their possessions and departed them to the apostles so that they could divide them up with the Christians that needed it. In Acts 4, 32 through 36, we read that they were all of one heart and one soul. Nobody said the things that they possessed were their own, but they distributed them freely. Barnabas, we have no clue how long that piece of property had been in his family. But here's what we do know. When the Christians needed it, Barnabas sold it and gave all of the proceeds and laid them at the apostles' feet. And Jesus is saying to you and to me, I hope you be willing to do the same thing. For some people, this is too much. They can't stand this. But there were people that met Jesus that were always leaving things behind to follow him. A woman in Samaria left her water pot, ran back into her city and said, I think I found the Messiah. Come see a man who's told me everything I've ever done. John 4, 28 and 29. Jesus calls Matthew or Levi at his tax tax booth. Luke 5 and verse 28. Luke tells us Matthew left all to follow him. Paul lists all of his former accomplishments and badges in Judaism, Philippians 3, 8 through 10. And he says, I threw them all on the trash heap for Jesus Christ so that I might know him in the power of his resurrection. Because there's one thing to know about Jesus, but it's a different thing entirely to experience him. And Paul says, I wanted to be able to lay both hands on him. So I let go of all of my possessions in order to do so. Jesus says, are you willing to part ways with everything to follow me? It's not the case in the Bible that wealth is inherently sinful or that poverty is inherently virtuous. But this is true. The Bible says our relationship to things in this world says a lot about our relationship to the maker of everything. And so Jesus talked about money and possessions and wealth more than anything else in his ministry because he was wanting people to know, don't let it drive a wedge between me and you. Don't let it separate you from the true riches of heaven. Be careful of your view of material things. Kari Willis had his dream come true. He was inducted. He was he was drafted by the Indianapolis Colts at 26. This was last year in June of 2022. He shocked everybody when only after three years in the NFL, he decided to retire. He said he's going into ministry. He felt like God called him. I don't know anything about his religious beliefs, his doctrinal preferences and beliefs. But this is what we do know. What Willis has done is what God wants everybody in the world to be willing to do. No, not to leave our jobs and to go into full time ministry, but to write all of our plans in pencil and to view all of our possessions as being held in little piggy banks that can be cracked open upon divine request in a moment's notice to say your life, my life belongs to you. And whatever you want from me, God, you can have it. It's yours. I surrender all. Jesus says nobody who's if you're not willing to do that, you can't be my disciple. If a life of convenience and ease means more to you than following me, you probably should look for another rabbi. No wonder the crowds departed in John chapter six. Jesus was challenging them at the heart to say it's going to cost you everything. Peter heard this teaching when the rich young ruler departed and he says to Jesus in Mark chapter 10. And what about us? We've left everything to follow you. Jesus says no man who's left father or house or brothers and sisters, mother and father for my name's sake. They'll all receive a hundredfold in this time and in the world to come eternal life. It's not the case that we serve God to get. But the Bible teaches when we serve God, our hands are open and free. And as we've given in a special way, our hands are fuller than they were before. He's able to make all grace abound toward us. We have all sufficiency in all things. Second Corinthians nine and verse eight. And we're blessed in ways we couldn't have been previously. To surrender all to Jesus means there's nothing I have, no relationship, no material possession, no earthly status, that if it came between me and God, I wouldn't surrender it with a moment's notice and no regret in order to get closer to him. And here's the last thing Jesus says. He says, I want you to make sure that you practice good stewardship. In verse 34 and 35, Jesus says, salt is good. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can you restore it? It won't be good 
for the manure power or for the soil. He says men will cast it out. It'll be worthless. He that has ears to hear, let him hear. This idea of salt is brought up over and over again in the Bible. The Old Testament sacrifices were done with salt. Leviticus 2 and verse 13. Jesus told his disciples, have salt among yourselves. Mark 9 and verse 50. We're the salt of the earth. Matthew 5 and verse 13. And we're to make good on that. Jesus says, if you surrender that, what good are you? Jesus is saying, I want you to practice good stewardship when you receive my teaching and it becomes a part of your life. Don't become useless. Don't be a person who used to give all, but now you only give some. Jesus is saying, give me everything. Serve me faithfully and completely so that you won't be disappointed in the end. I've never been to my high school reunion. Maybe you've been to yours. There are a lot of reasons why people go, but there's one reason why everybody goes. And that's to see how everybody's doing. Who's soared and who's sputtered? Who's flabby and who's fit? Who made it and who missed it? And we want to see how everybody's doing. And the reality is it's impossible to look the same way you did 20 years ago. But Jesus is saying, I want you to keep the same fervor that you had when you came to me at first. I want you to hold to the same tenacity of faithfulness and determination that you did initially, because when there's the great reunion on high, listen, we don't know where everybody in our Christian life is going to end up in this life. But we know in the life to come, there's going to be a great reunion. And just like in high school reunions, people come to those things and they say, I would have never thought that he would have ended up with her. I would have never thought that I thought he was surely going to business or be an engineer. I would have never thought that he'd be in this position. We don't want to get to that great reunion. And look around and say, I would have surely thought that he would. He was he led singing every week. She taught Bible classes for so. How did they give out and give in? We don't want to be disappointed at the great reunion on high. Jesus says you don't want to be like salt that used to have a purpose, but now it's useless. You want to make good on the investment that God's made in you. And you want to Revelation two and verse 10. Be faithful until death. And then and only then will you receive a crown of life. Jesus says, I want you to be able and be willing to surrender all. You know, we can study about this, but if you look around even this auditorium, you've seen it happen before. People that have come to Jesus from various parts of the world and for various reasons in various stages of life. People that have said to God, I surrender all. Nobody in my family has ever obeyed the gospel, but I want to be a Christian. I want to do what you want me to do. My family's not going to like this. In fact, they're really opposed to me doing so, but I'm more concerned with pleasing my heavenly father than my earthly family. People that could have amassed fortunes for themselves, but instead have invested in the Lord's work and preaching schools and in missionaries down through the centuries because they've said, you know what? It all belongs to God anyway. And while God's not opposed to me having it and enjoying some, it's his and I want to give it to his cause. People who've said, you know what, I've got to surrender this smartphone or this gaming system because using it causes me to be tempted in ways and to compromise holiness in ways that will cost me my soul. It might be strange to some. It might be counted as weird, but I'm willing to do it because I really want to be close to Jesus. It's the person that gets knocked down over and over again but refuses to give up because they know they'll be welcomed by a Savior who longs and loves to forgive us. And rather than give up, they continue to give themselves over to him because they know what it means to surrender all. Jesus says, whosoever comes after me and is unwilling to forsake all that he has can't be my disciple. And when we've piled up all of our white flags and we finally get to heaven, we'll be astounded. Because when you think about everything we've given up and when we get there and see the glorious place that will be ours for all eternity, we'll be shocked that he was willing to leave that to come here. And Jesus says, if I was willing to leave heaven and come to earth, nobody can come to heaven who's unwilling to forsake earth in order to do so. Maybe you need to forsake all today. Maybe you need to surrender all to Jesus. It begins with obeying the gospel. Mike's going to lead us in a song to encourage us. But if you believe Jesus is the son of God 
and you're ready to repent of your sins and confess him as Lord, we'd be happy to immerse you in water for the forgiveness of your sins. That's how that surrender begins. And it continues throughout the remainder of our lives. If we can pray for you or pray with you, we'd be happy to do that as well. If we can help you in any way, come now as together we stand and as we sing.